This passage is from Revelation 2, 18 to 29. To the church in Thyatira, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I'll also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning, church. I'm glad you're able to make it in uh, on this uh, beautiful Sunday morning. Yakisugi. It's a Japanese word. Uh, Yaki meaning charred. You think about yakitori, uh, charred chicken. Tori is chicken. Or yakisoba, uh, which is charred or burnt, uh, Japanese noodle. Yakisugi, yaki meaning burnt and charred. Uh, I mean, charred and insugi is a kind of cypress indigenous wood that's, uh, that's, uh, that's uh, known in Japan. It's also known as su shugiban. Uh, it's an ancient uh, kind of Japanese technique used for charring uh, cedar planks and then burnishing uh, the burnt uh, and then burnishing the outside and then sanding it down and preserving it. And it's part of this beautiful architecture in Japan and known different parts of the world that really preserve and make these beautiful kind of buildings. Uh, and not only is the, the, the wood charred, but it's not only is it scraped off, but it's also sealed with these natural oils that give us this extra protective um, measure. Yaki Sugi. Why am I talking about this? Well, through this whole series so far, and we're not even done chapter two yet in the book of Revelations, I feel like that's the imagery that God's given us, that as the people of God, that he's doing this kind of charring, the sanding down, uh, and, and, and taking us apart at the outsides of us, smoothing off the rough edges, and building us into something beautiful for him and for his kingdom, that he's doing something amazing in each and every single one of us, but it's going to take a bit of fire, it's going to take a bit of sanding, it's going to take a bit of pain, really, to get us to a part where, where Jesus says, yeah, this is my church, and it's beautiful, and, it's, and I'm building something up for my name and for my kingdom, and that's what he's doing here. And maybe you've been feeling that through this whole series, that there's a bit of sanding in our own spiritual lives, there's a bit of burning and charring on the outside, but it's actually for our good, it's for your good, it's for the good of God's kingdom and his people. And I was joking with some of our leaders, we're not even done chapter two yet, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it to chapter 22, 
uh, with all the gold that we're digging up here in the book of Revelation. So pray for me. Pray that I just don't get consumed every week as I study the word. I just don't show up. And I'm like, you know, I'm done. Uh, I'm just before God, and um, I didn't show up this way. But anyway, uh, so we're here again in, in chapter 22, uh, chapter 2 in the book of Revelation. Uh, and I'm praying that through this series, which we're t- titling the book of Revelation, Future and Focus, that as we see Jesus and what he would reveal to us, that we would see reality now as it really is. Uh, God has been refining us and maybe refining you slowly. And I'm praying that he'll continue to do so through this series that we're going through. Now, it's 96 AD, as I talk about the context a bit more. Again, reminding us Emperor Domitian is in power, and one of the most ruthless and narcissistic and cruel Roman emperors there ever was. There was this imperial cult that make everyone worship Caesar as Lord, and if you didn't do so, you were executed. Uh, You were jailed and then executed. And you are severely punished. And John, the writer of this uh, book, uh, Jesus reveals to him all these visions. And he's in his 80s. He's exiled in an island called Patmos. And he's, uh, they try to shut him up. And they try to lock him away on this island. But this didn't stop Jesus from speaking to him. <clears throat> it didn't stop Jesus from using him, even though he's locked away, even though he's banished on an island. In fact, they reveal, he reveals to John Uh, these visions, and here we are in 2023 studying it and reading it and hearing the voice of God together. And we find ourselves today in uh, in number the fourth letter that's written to the seven churches. And I'm not sure we've actually shown this map before. I thought maybe it would be fitting uh, that we went went through, uh, we preached through uh, the the letter to the Ephesians, which is number one there on the map, and then we went to Sperna. So Ephesus, was a church known for action but no love. Smyrna was a church that was uh, being persecuted and they're dying for their faith. And then Pergamos, last, uh, or Pergamum, last, last, last week, uh, not last, last, last week, last week, <laughs> uh, we learned about uh, how they were in a fight for their minds and certain thoughts and truths are seeping into their minds. And today we're in the fourth church there in Thyatira. Thyatira. And as most of, the the, uh, most of the themes of the other churches uh, were maybe they're killed for their faith and they're being persecuted and executed, it didn't seem to be the case here for the church in Thyatira. In fact, the problem here more had to do with how living out their faith led to certain disadvantages they had in society, like in their businesses and how they suffered socially and financially, not to death to that point, but socially financially, and in their local businesses. But what do we know about Thyatira? It's the modern-day city of Akhizar, built literally right on top of this uh, ancient city. So there's not a lot of digging going on because there's life happening uh, on, on top here. But what we do know is that it's about 70 kilometers southeast of Pergamum on the road to Sardis. And not a lot else is known besides the fact that it's leased in stature, and least in significance when compared to the other six cities that are written letters to. But it is situated along a major trade route, giving the city commercial and manufacturing opportunities. In fact, Lydia, if you may remember her name, Lydia was known as the first convert in Europe and also the seller of purple cloth, which was an expensive dye that's hard to make. Uh, and and we, we're introduced to her when she's in a church in Philippi. And she's actually from the city, Thyatira. 
What's also interesting is that this is the longest letter, as Evelyn was reading for us, it's the longest letter written to the seven churches, though it's the longest, it's written to the least important of the churches. So even though it's least important and maybe in stature and in and, and, and politics, uh, Jesus has a, a, an important message for us this morning. Now, I mentioned a few times about its economy and, and its business. It was situated along this major trade route, and a lot of uh, uh, trade guilds were formed in that city. And a guild was a mix of our modern day, uh, our, our modern day, oh, I just lost the, the word uh, for it, uh, the unions that we have. The modern day is a mix of unions that we have and the mafia. Uh, that's, what, that was, that's what it was back in the day. So you were part of a union that protected you, but if you weren't part of it, you were also against them. Uh, so there's this kind of trade business war uh, kind of going on. And Grant Osborne in his commentary of Revelations writes, each craft person, whether merchants, tanners, potters, bakers, uh, wood and linen, uh, wool and linen workers, seller of cloth, various metal workers, they were part of a guild. And though they were not obligatory, a few workers failed to belong uh, for the guilds were centers of social life as well as commerce. In fact, both physically and sociologically, the guilds were at the heart of civic life. So this was a blue-collar kind of town. They're working hard in the local shops, and these guilds were the center of social, sociologically and also economically for them. In fact, in the city, there were these town squares, and within the town square, each guild had a square of its own that they owned. And you would go to the square, and you know exactly where you belong and where you're supposed to go. And furthermore, not only was it a union and a mafia, but they also had these feasts that were going on, that were part of their, their belonging, part of what they did. And, the, and a part of these feasts, they were dedicated to these, uh, these gods that they had, the patron gods that they had and that they Worshipped. And if you didn't partake in that, then you would be shunned off to the side. And it's with that as the background, we come to the big idea this morning. And the big idea for us is this, following Jesus as Lord is an either or, not a both and. Following Jesus as Lord is an either or, not a both and. What do I mean by that? And I love the last song that we sung about holiness and righteousness. And that's exactly it here, the battle for the heart of the church in Theoteria, because following Jesus is about holiness, and holiness, this separateness, isn't just God's will and his way for us, it's actually his purpose for us. It's his purpose for us, a separateness from the world, and many of us, we struggle in living out our faith, we think it's kind of both end, can we follow Jesus and also hold on to certain other aspects of life? We know it doesn't please him, but we can't exactly let it go, so can we have both and, can we follow Jesus and hold on to these things? of the world, of our, of our culture. No, we, as we read in the word here today, following Jesus, having this holiness, this separateness, is an either or. Either I follow Jesus or I'm following something else. Either I follow Jesus and declare him to be Lord or I'm declaring something else to be Lord in my life. I mean, the, 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 the letter starts off in this way, to the angel of the church in Thyatira writes, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. It's fascinating. Jesus reveals a little bit more to the church here than he normally does, a few more descriptors of who he is. And this is the only place in Revelation where the Son of God, the term Son of God is mentioned and is referred to, to Jesus. Why? Was well, I mentioned about the patron gods back in the day, 
uh, the patron god of Thyatira was Apollo. And Apollo was the son of Zeus. And Zeus is the god of gods. God, Zeus is the king of kings. So right here, Jesus reveals himself. No, I'm the son of God, not Apollo, your patron god. I'm the true son of God because Yahweh, he is the God of gods and he is the one that reigns supreme over all things. So here, right then and right in the beginning, I am the son of God that trumps all things as above all other gods and all other things created, all the other things on earth, above the earth and under the earth. I am he. I am the son of God. And Jesus' eyes were like blazing fire. And can you imagine? I'm just... As I was reading this passage, I was transforming myself back in the day, being one of the disciples, or just seeing Jesus walk along the streets of Jerusalem and looking into the eyes of God. I don't know, what would you see? Here is a pretty scary image. <laughs> it's blazing fire. But yet, at the same time, when we look into Jesus, our Savior, it's also eyes of peace and comfort and love. But here, he introduces himself, whose eyes are like blazing fire. Because when you stare into Jesus, his eyes... You're staring into the eyes of God who, who, who sees through all things. He sees, he sees through our hearts. He sees through our minds. Not only that, but his feet are like burnished bronze. And I mentioned the guilds that are going on. And, and one of the more major guilds was, were the bronze smiths of the day that made bronze and it was a particular tough a metal to, to work with. And there was a major guild in the day. He was saying, here, yeah, maybe there's just major guilds and the bronze Makers, the bronze smiths in that guild were in control, but me, I'm, my feet are made of this burnished bronze uh, where I can tread on all things. And you know how hard it is to make the fire that it takes to make this bronze. Well, I can trample on all things, and this is me who's coming to speak to you. We see here that the Christian life is the life of growth in progress and development. In fact, if we are to live out this life and understand who this Jesus is, if we're to see him and follow him, not as a either or, uh, as either or, not as a both and, we need to see how our Christian life is about growth. It's about progress. It's about development. In verse 19, we read this, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first, like all the other churches that have started so far, Jesus knows something about this church too. He knows four things, in fact. Number one, their deeds. Number two, their love and faith. And I'm, uh, I'm keeping them together as one on purpose because I believe that's what Jesus did. Uh, their deeds. Number two, their love and faith. Number three, their service and perseverance. And number four, how they're doing more than they did at first. As John Stott notices, Thyatira not only rivaled Ephesus in busy Christian service, but exhibited the love which Ephesus lacked, preserved the faith which was imperiled at Pergamum, and shared with Smyrna the virtue of patient and endurance in tribulation. See, Thyatira, it was growing. The church there was, was growing and moving forward. And that's what living things do. Living things grow and living things move forward. If following Jesus as Lord is an either or, not a both and, then we need to be discerning in our lives. We need to be asked in the question. Uh, we need to ask, are our actions and our thoughts and our decisions, are they moving us closer to Christ? Or are they moving us further away? 
Every single day, the decisions that we make, are, is it moving us closer to who Jesus is and where he wants us to be, where he desires us to be, this holiness that we've been singing about and talking about, or is it moving us further away? And in order for us to discern, it takes faith. It takes faith to love uh, and to love God. And when you love, you're living, and when you love God, you're living out your faith. You see the coupling in that. It's also interesting that in service and perseverance that they're paired together as well because serving isn't easy and it's going to take perseverance to keep doing so. It takes resiliency to also actively live out this faith we profess. The couple together, it's not one or the other. It takes service and perseverance together in order to honor God and to move forward. It takes faith and love in order to, to move forward, not just one or the other. I like the message translation of, of verse 19, who uh, Eugene Peterson translates it in this way. I see everything you're doing for me. Impressive. The love and faith, the service and persistence. Yes, very impressive. You get better at it every day. As I read this passage, I find scripture staring back at me because when we read scripture, scripture's really reading us and reading our own hearts I hear this question from God at the conviction of my heart, is my Christian life like this? Maybe we started off well, but how well are we doing now? Are we moving forward? Are we standing still? Or are we falling backwards? Would Jesus say in your life, you're doing more than you did at first? Would he say to you, you get better at it every day? And I was, I was preparing for this message, uh, and just throughout my breaks, I came across this video, and this quote from Denzel Washington, <laughs> an actor, if you don't know who he is, uh, without commitment, you never start, but more importantly, without consistency, you never finish. And I think many of us, that we, we, we think we're going to commit to Christ, and we're going to start, and we, we do, but we lose the consistency along the way. Denzel, who's Christian, and he proclaims his faith. Act quite actively, actually. I think there's a biblical truth in what he shared here. That Jesus is also encouraging us here today. That here, it's not just about starting and, and really committing, because, because if we thought we committed, but we don't have this consistency through it all, did we really commit in the beginning, to, uh, in the first place? That is about this consistency. And don't hear me incorrectly. I don't think scripture here is saying again to do more. That's the fight here. It's not about doing more. It's about growing deeper and, 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 and being more connected and more consistent with our walk in Jesus. And do we live in that way? Would Jesus say to you, you're getting better at it every single day? Yes, there's better days. And yes, there are days where we fall. It's not about perfection, but it is about progress. That might be another Denzel quote. I don't know. But it, we, it's about moving forward and following Jesus to the best that we have. Uh, the best ability that we have. Dallas Willard in his book, Renovation of the Heart, says this, we don't believe something by merely saying we believe it, or even when we believe that we believe it. We, we believe something when we act as if it were true. So here, we see, we're confronted with this question that Jesus is like, hey, I see all these things. You're progressing, you're moving, that's really good. And you're living out your faith. That's, that's really, really good. As good as those things are, we need to ask ourselves a second question. Because you might be like, yeah, Doug, it's really good. I'm progressing. I think Jesus would be proud of me and saying, I am better now than I was b 
before. I'm following him closer. But there's a correction and a warning for Thyatira that, that I believe there's also for us here in 2023. Though Thyatira was growing, so was the growth of some unwanted things. Like weeds to a beautiful patch of grass or cancer to the body, something harmful was growing too in the church. For Thyatira, this weed and cancer grew because of moral compromise. They were saying, yeah, I follow Jesus as Lord, but can I also hold on to these other things? It's moral compromise. Can I also hold on to the ways I used to live or ways of the culture? We come here to the second point here, that tolerating is not the same as loving. And I think that really gets at the heart of the issue here, what Jesus is saying. That tolerating is not the same as loving. Revelations 2, 20, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate, there's that word, I'm boring this morning, that woman with Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. If holiness is God's purpose for us, so separateness from the things of the world, then Satan's purpose, his goal for us, is to destroy it. I'm going to read that again. If holiness is God's purpose for us, then Satan's goal is to destroy it. As many theologians of present and past have noted, if the devil cannot destroy the church by persecution or heresy, it will try to corrupt it with evil. Did you know there's a battle for your heart? There's a battle for you to compromise. There's a battle for your faith. They can't get at you from the outside. Satan's going to try to get at you from the inside with lies and deception. And we talked about last week how though we live in an age of, uh, we live in an age that hates intolerance, we're constantly actually living in intolerance. That we live in a culture that says you sh we should tolerate all things. And in that kind of culture, that culture itself is intolerant. In our current day and culture, some, somehow we started defining tolerance as unconditional affirmation. Unconditional affirmation, as American theologian Kevin DeYoung calls it, that no matter what it is that you think, no matter what it is that you do, no matter how, what it is that you act, tolerance is unconditional affirmation of what that is, that we can't say anything else against it, scripture has no word against it, that we can't, uh, we, can't, uh, we can't correct or even have a comment because the moment that we do, that's, we're known as a bigot and that's known as judgment. And Kevin DeYoung, he goes on to explain how there's this temptation where when we love everyone so much, that we want to love everyone so much, that we end up rejecting nothing at all. And does that not speak into the culture that we're living in today, that we want to love people so much, we want to accept people so much, we don't want to be known as big as an intolerant, that we end up rejecting nothing. That's what the church in Thyatira was struggling with, that they were living out love, that's great, but they're loving everything, loving everyone, that there was no, nothing to be rejected, that everyone, yes, is welcome, but that theology was warped in a way that started crossing boundaries into who Jesus says he is, into what holiness is about. And just think about Jesus' approach for a moment to his church here. Jesus says, you're doing great things, you're growing in all these ways, but Jesus never patted on the back the church of Thyatira and saying, good job on being so welcoming. We don't read that here. Good job in being so welcoming. Good job on embracing all people. That's a tough message. Because this love that Thyatira lives out, 
That's actually the point that Jesus is making. Yes, they are loving, but this love that Thyatira lives out, it's actually unbiblical love because it's undiscerning and blindly affirming. It doesn't actually follow what Jesus says and, and to what, what, how, what he defines holiness and what the way to truth, life, uh, truth in life is. It's actually a ways of the world and culture that seeps into the church itself. Just think about this for a moment. If we offer this kind of definition of, of tolerance, which is an unconditional uh, affirmation of whatever that action is, if we t- think about that and we can't say anything is wrong, this will go terribly wrong if I applied this to my parenting. Like, terribly wrong. Cohen and, and Ryan and Hudson are just playing in the middle of a busy street, you know, with their toys. I'm just sitting back like, ah, who am I to judge? You know, they seem to be having fun. Everything seems to be going great. Uh, oh, well. You know, that, that's just what it is. Or they're taking a bath, and my son Cohen loves baths, and he decides to take some electronics, like a toaster, into there. He's like making toast right beside taking his bathtub, right? Uh, you know, electronics and water don't mix. But I sit back, to each their own. You know, whatever they enjoy. No, that wouldn't make any sense, right? Like, I, I mean, I'm taking, I, I, those are extreme examples perhaps, but I'm, I'm, I'm picking out and teasing out the ways of our culture and ways that thinking actually stops and doesn't make sense if we actually think about it. Like, tolerance is not unconditional affirmation of whatever action it is. No, it's actually to call out things for what they are because in protection and love of the person. That's what Jesus is, is doing here. In fact, Paul picks up on this in Ephesians 4.15. Instead of instead speaking the truth and love, truth and love must always be paired together. We explained that last week. What happens when you speak the truth and love, we will grow to become in every aspect a mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. That is when we follow Jesus and we follow his ways and we listen and we correct and we speak truth and love and, we, and, we, and we're with one another. We're actually maturing each other. Yakisugi. It's part of the charring off on the outside of us that God is doing something new each and every single time that this truth is sp- spoken to us. In fact, as we think about tolerance, Tolerance is way too low of a bar to live in society. If tolerance is the bar, that's way too low because as Christians, we're called to love and pray for our neighbors and our enemies. That's the next step even further, not just to tolerate. Like Jesus, like tolerate? No. You're to pray for your enemies. You're to love love those who hate you and persecute you. Like the Christian way of loving is actually beyond that. It's way further than that. But here, as I get back to the text, I digress. <laughs> we get back to the text. We see how the church in Thyatira, they're, they're guilty of tolerating Jezebel. And we don't actually know whether Jezebel was, a real, uh, was the real name for this person. There probably was a real person who was living this out. Or whether Jesus wanted us to think of Jezebel in the Old Testament. Because Jezebel comes with all sorts of bad news. If you're expecting a daughter and you want to name your daughter, don't name her Jezebel. All right, that's how bad. Like, no, like, I think I looked up the names, and there's like four people in the last five years or something that's named their daughter Jezebel. Uh, and probably the four that named them Jezebel didn't know about this. Uh, they didn't read into the biblical history. Because the name Jezebel comes with all sorts of trouble. And you can read all about it in First and Second Kings, 
where Jezebel was brought into the northern kingdom of Israel to, to marry the newly crowned Israelite king Ahab, except Jezebel worshipped all sorts of foreign gods. Uh, and she, when she came into the kingdom, uh, brought all these foreign gods and led to really the, the, um, uh, the, 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 the unholiness and the idolatry that, that came to that whole nation of, of Israel. If you want to read, read up on it, it's first and, uh, first and Second Kings, you read all about it, but especially First Kings chapter 16 all the way through to 18. We read, uh, oh, that's the wrong passage. Oh, yeah, right here. We read about this in verse, uh, chap, uh, chapter 16, verse 31. He not only, he meaning King uh, Ahab, uh, not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. So we see the infiltration, that was the word I was struggling for, the infiltration of these foreign gods into Israel that led to the corruption of all the people. And Jezebel, he knows about how the Israelites are to have no other gods, but she didn't care at all. And Ahab accepts the, the Jezebel's gods, but Jezebel didn't accept the true God, Yahweh. And this infiltration led to the demise of the entire nation. And you read about how Jezebel goes off killing Yahweh's prophets, uh, the epic battle in chapter 18 of Elijah, challenging Jezebel's gods and prophets on Mount Carmel to lighting uh, the sacrifice. Uh, you can read all about that. I don't have time I have to go through all of that. At the end, uh, Yahweh wins, as we know, this in Revelation. Um, but it really paints the real danger we have here. The real danger that we have here. Because what does Jezebel represent for us? Jezebel represents anyone or anything that comes into our, your life that brings you away from God. Jezebel represents anyone or anything that leads you to commit spiritual uh, adultery. We speak of Jezebel, and in the Christian world, we kind of say, that's the spirit of Jezebel at work. That's the term that's been coined over time. And I think that's true, that Jezebel really is still at work today, because Jezebel really is anything and anyone that draws our attention away from from God. And the greatest pressure often that draws us away from God can come not necessarily from the obvious things. You're like, hey, I'm not going to worship a, uh, a physical idol or to go off and do these things are obviously bad, but from what seems to give us provision. That's the struggle of the first century church there in Thyatira. What do I mean? Well, the fight for the church in Thyatira had less to do with pagan religion than it did with the world of business and commerce. That, that was a struggle. They're like, can I follow Yahweh and declare him to be God? Or do I keep going on in these guilds? And the social life, and the worship, and these lunches and dinners. Because if I don't partake in all of that, I'm going to lose my livelihood. I'm going to lose my, 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 uh, I'm gonna lose, uh, my, my friends and the people that I know. I'm going to be shunned to the outside. For the church, then it was business and commerce, but for us, it might be something similar. It could be certain social circles that we want to belong to. It could be the schools that we're a part of. It could be our sports teams and the culture that's 
there. It could be where we find our entertainment and what we find to be fun. And that what we're wrestling with today is not uh, guilds and uh, idol worship of that sort, but it's actually a feeling of not belonging to the world. That we choose Jesus, that we're afraid that we're going to lose everything that we know. As John Stott writes in the message of the Sermon on the Mount, probably the greatest tragedy of the church throughout its long and checkered history has been its constant tendency to confirm to the prevailing culture instead of developing a Christian counterculture. And maybe that's your struggle this morning. That you're listening to this and you're like, Doug, I don't know if I can let go of all the things that I love and I enjoy, that Jesus is calling me to be away from. I don't know if I can do it. And the problem that was the same for the church and Thyatira, but the solution that Jesus gives for us is actually not to focus on the guilds or focus on the distraction, but to focus on Jesus. Because what do we notice about what Jesus says about himself? We notice that he's the son of God. We explained that a little bit before, that he is the one that rules over all things. He is the true God. His eyes are like blazing fire. He can see through all things. His feet are like burnished bronze. Like he can walk and tread over all things, and nothing compares to him. Nothing is as powerful as he is. He also says, I've been give, I, I'll get, she, he also says that I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. He has also, in verse 21, given time for repentance as well. That our God is actually a gracious God. He's a loving God. We read this in 2 Peter 3, 9, that time, is actually, time to repent is actually a gift. 2 Peter 3, 9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He's waiting patiently for us to come back to him. We also read this, there will be a repayment according to the deeds in verse 23. He says this, I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Maybe some of us ascribe to a loving, cuddly Jesus, and this blows us away, that we will read this about God. That there's a warning here. For those that don't follow him, for those that follow the idols of the world, he's saying, I will strike them dead that there are nothing before me. Jesus, why? Because he searches the hearts and the minds. Jesus sees through all things. Together, the heart and the mind constitutes the entire inner being, and nothing can be hidden from God. It's not a faith by works, so don't hear me wrong again, but it's how our deeds and action actually show where our heart is, and it reveals our allegiances. As Daryl Johnson has says in his it's there Johnson says in his book, maybe I don't have it up there, said in, says in his book, The Edge of Discipleship, we can recite the creeds and sing the hymns on Sunday, but the real proof that we believe in Jesus Christ is in, is in the way we live Monday through Saturday. So it's not just in the ways that we sing and the way that we fellowship and connect with each other. It's actually who we are when no one is watching, who we are Monday to Saturday. So, Jesus says, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to, to you who do not hold on to her teaching, have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, so-called, like you think you know these deeper things, you think you have a specific revelation from life, he says to the church in uh, Thyatira, 
No, those aren't actually true life. That's actually Satan's secrets. There's a discernment that's needed there. I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. So don't hold on to these false teachings of our day because these deep things are actually the deep things of Satan that are looking to infiltrate into the heart of the church. And here's the great promise to the one Here's the great promise to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end. I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the church, uh, what the spirit says to the churches. I love this. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, if you're finding it difficult so hard, hold on. Cling on to Jesus because he will give great things because Jesus is the one who makes incredible promises and two great promises here. He gives authority over the nations, meaning even though the the powers are at work in this world, ultimately they will not work against you. But he'll also give you the morning star. Even though it seems like societies and control, the nations and the powers of the world and control, ultimately, God is in control, but we also give you the morning star. And as Daryl Johnson writes, the morning star usually appears at the darkest time of the night, around 2 to 3 a.m. The darkest point of the night, when darkness seems to be taking over the land, when all you see is darkness, that is exactly the point when the morning star Comes And when the morning star comes, it's a reminder for you that the day is coming, that hope is coming, that Jesus is coming. No matter how dark it is, no matter what you struggle with, that Jesus is in control, that dawn is coming. And there's this promise here for us, who are the overcomers, to those who keep his words until the end. Who are the overcomers? Who are the overcomers here? Those who are willing, ultimately, who are ultimately willing to lose right now, those who are willing to be left out, those who will be willing to be rejected by culture for the sake of Jesus' name, those are the overcomers. Those are the overcomers. This really all comes down to a loyalty, and that's following Jesus. It's not either or. It's either or, not both and. Either declare Jesus as Lord or we don't. And this is a reminder for us, this was not a pleasant message. I want to say that out there. This was not a pleasant message for me to prepare. As I was reading this, I'm like, I see the conviction in my own heart, the Jezebels in my life acting upon me. Because Jezebel is still very real in our lives. It comes in the thinking, in the quietness, in that slight twisting of the word. It comes in the way of, look, we need to strike a balance in life, and we can't actually live every day for Jesus. So you know what? Just let up a little bit. The voice of Jezebel comes in that way. Or do you really, need to keep, you really need to keep your religion out of the school, out of the work, out of the business, out of politics, because that's meant for the church in your own Christian world. Or, come on, God doesn't actually want perfection, so go ahead and make all the mistakes you want. The voice of Jezebel seeps in ever so slowly. And we see here, that we have a decision to make as we come to the Lord's table. The decision to make that whether we'll follow Jesus or not. And just like in the first century church, and I find this haunting every single time I read it, as Jesus describes about communion 
and how he describes symbolically that the body is his, uh, that the bread is his body and the blood is his, is his blood and that you must eat and drink of him. We read this in John 6, 66, and numbers matter. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And that is my greatest concern for us as a church, that these thinking will seep into our lives and it would lead us to not, no longer follow Jesus somewhere down the line. So this morning, as we come to the Lord's table, we see that it's not about perfection. It's actually us, as we sung, coming to God in our messiness. That is in your messiness, in your weakness, in your darkest of times, in your failings, in your moments where you think you can't hold on any longer. That's exactly the point. It's not to cling to yourself or whatever it is that you are clinging on to dear life. If, if it's not Jesus, that's a point where we're to come into reflection this morning. Are we following Jesus as Lord or are we not? That's the question we, we come to every single day. But in your weakest moments, in your failings, God is still saying, Son, I love you. Daughter, I love you. Even though you fell away this week, even though you fell away last night or this morning, I love you and there is a seat for you at the table of God. So it was with that we come to the Lord's table and we're reminded that the invitation is still there for you now. That Jesus didn't only die for the past, but also for the present, 